Hey everyone, welcome back to another season of Data Driven Health Radio. I'm your host, Dave Korsunsky. On this show, we dive deep into how you can use data to measure, manage, and optimize your health with the latest science and technology. This show is brought to you by Heads Up, which is our web and mobile app designed for individuals and healthcare professionals who need a precise way to measure and manage health data. Check us out at headsuphealth.com. If you've got comments, questions, or feedback on this show, shoot us an email, support at headsuphealth.com. We'd love to hear from you. And with that said, let's get into our next exciting episode. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Data Driven Health Radio. And I have a very special guest today, Drea Burbank. She is an MD and a technologist and a million other things that I could not actually have time to finish going through in anticipation of this interview. But I just went down the rabbit hole of Drea in all of the interesting projects that she has her hands on. So we're going to get into all kinds of really, really interesting topics related to health, optimization, technology, some of Drea's personal passion projects that she's working on that she wants to share with the world. So Drea, we first got on your radar screen because you had written some content around the struggles that are inherent with electronic health record systems. And that's actually why I started my whole company in the first place. So we'll have lots to talk about there. Really just like, can I even get a trend line of the most important health metrics that matter to my existence above ground? It was a nightmare. It was like paper records and patient portals. And I was trying to work on a health issue and I just needed a simple trend line of like inflammation markers. And to this day, that's still impossible. So I'd really like to dig in there and we'll branch off from there. But Drea, if I may, I'd like to take a crack at your background just from like the initial cursory research I did because there was just some absolute gems on your website. Can I? And then you can correct me. Yeah, sure. I'm curious to see what your takeaway was. All right. So I just scribbled a few things here, but Drea is an MD technologist and she is a digital nomad with a yoga addiction. Love that. She pretends to live in San Francisco, but we don't actually know if she lives in San Francisco. A yoga dirtbag, professional pyromaniac, uptight uber nerd, and smartass. So those were the... Nuggets I pulled off the site. Welcome, Drea, to our show. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Right on. Well, let's just start with something simple, like the uh, content, the piece you put out there around just inherent challenges with electronic health records technology. Like I said, that's why we built our company. But I'd love to hear about your background as an MD, first and foremost. Sounds like you probably ran into a lot of those challenges, but maybe we could just start with your background in healthcare and and the types of work you did, or maybe still doing in um, the medical field. And then let's go from there into all these other amazing worlds that we can open up. Yeah, happy to talk about it. So I grew up off the grid in central Idaho. I did nine years in forest fires. And then I went to medical school in Canada. I was in a rural and remote training program. Where in uh, Canada? I'm from Canada. Really? I was in Kelowna. I was the first four medical students in the hospital in Kelowna. It's beautiful up there. It was stunning. We were so lucky. They had just, uh, they kept med students out of the hospital for a long time. And a lot of the, you know, top clinicians across Canada would retire to Kelowna because it was a kind of beachfront property for Canada. Yep. And they ran the hospital the way they'd always wanted to run their hospitals. 
So the nurses basically functioned like residents and uh, they had a really collaborative relationship with the physicians and they had a huge catchment area. So they pull all kinds of specialty cases, but they still did overnight call from the hospital. Mm -hmm. So I worked with mostly attending physicians and I just had a really idyllic version of medicine. Yeah. It was like the best of specialty care with generalist care and like good working relationships, interdisciplinary. Yeah. And really, really talented physicians, clinically talented. So we had a DOS system in the hospital that had been introduced and I was watching these amazing physicians trying to use this DOS system. And I was like, I could do better. I started playing plants versus zombies. And I was like, wow, you could just do something like this. It'd be easy. (laughs) Yeah. So I think sometimes that like naivete is necessary to do interesting things. You're like, oh, this would be easy. So I was like, well, I'm just going to do a year in Silicon Valley. I'll design something and then I'll I'll come back to medicine. I got you. So that was what kind of like, first of all, you're a U.S. citizen, but you went to Kelowna to do the training. Is that correct? So I was a forest firefighter and I followed it north. I started following big snags in... uh, British Columbia, all the best falling here, a lot, you know, logger or a forest firefighter happens in Canada. So I really wanted to learn that. And I married a Canadian and I was already in Canada. So when I went to school, back to school, I went to school for medicine in Canada. And then that experience got you down to Silicon Valley to start working on technology centric problems in healthcare. Is that accurate? Yeah. I still think that if you want to get really hard tech skills, you got to go to Silicon Valley. I know that sounds exclusionary, but the competition in Silicon Valley is global. And so when you go there, you end up working with the best people from all over the world. There are other tech hubs, obviously, like Toronto has a great tech hub, Vancouver Mm -hmm. does, Austin, all these other places. I was just in Dubai and it's great. But if you want to get that really, really hardcore skill set, I think you need to spend some time in the Valley. Yeah, I spent the better part of 10 years out there. I was in Palo Alto working at VMware. And that's where I got to really like build my skills work alongside all of these amazingly brilliant people, just learn how that whole industry works out there. I don't think I really could have started a company. I probably could have, but the skills I learned there are, I think, just inherently part of what's helping me stay successful. It's just cutting my teeth in Silicon Valley, basically. You don't have to stay there. It just they've got a really good ecosystem. Like if you go to Stanford Hospital, a lot of the academics there will leave for a couple of years, start a tech company, and then go back to Stanford. So they kind of like cycle through. And the hospital is pretty good. They've got like a really nice like. I work with uh, Nirav Shah for a little bit. Like he's a computer science professor that works with a lot of the doctors, Nima Agapur. So they're just super integrated with the clinical needs, and that's rare. I don't think I've ever seen it anywhere else. So are you practicing now or are you mostly working on um, other types of projects? Yeah, I left clinical medicine in 2018. Uh, We we got drafted to work on all kinds of high-tech stuff during COVID. We Mm -hmm. ended up running a concierge COVID testing network for Hollywood, which Mm -hmm. was so random. I was just, they, uh, they called us, they couldn't work at all during the height of the virus. And they asked us to get test results back and we were like, yeah, we could do that. It'll be easy. (laughs) So we, uh, they were getting their test results back in seven days from lab gen. It was RT-PCR. We got our first results back in six hours. And then every producer in Hollywood called us. And we ended up testing like NFL players, sports broadcasters during the height of the shutdown. So that was a lot of fun for us because it was basically using both sides of our head. You know, like the ability to scale really rapidly comes from high tech. 
mm-hmm. but the ability to do like serious work, like a legitimate RT-PCR test that nobody can question is comes from medicine. And we really like those kind of projects. We're highly serious, but we can still access all these different skills. Awesome. I love it. Well, just kind of going back to like how we first got on your radar, it was really looking at the inherent challenges of EHR systems. I was reading through the article and there's implications in terms of the amount of extra load that it puts on to a provider's workday. There's the challenges of actually, how can we even start pulling the data out of these systems and doing more with it? That's why uh, Heads Up started, because we wanted to find a way to allow an individual to pull in all of their information, regardless of what system it's in. And then also the data that they're using on the sensors at home, you know, all these sensors, CGMs, different devices that we can use now actually get incredible data. Patients now actually have incredible data. They actually have higher fidelity data than the doctor does. They have more contextualized data than the doctor does. They don't have the clinical expertise necessarily to do a lot of the interpretation, but there's incredibly promising startups out there that are bringing medical technology to individuals and building user experiences that help them understand their their body's own biofeedback. So what we tried to do at Heads Up was say, how do I get all that lab data in? Because that's stuff you're testing once a year, once every six months. And if you're making correct modifications in diet and lifestyle, or maybe you're already in a good place, you're making optimizations in diet and lifestyle, or maybe you're in a red zone state health-wise and you need to change certain things in your daily routine. So we wanted to find a way to overlay lifestyle metrics coming from sensors and devices with more like episodic clinical data. So that's what we do at Heads Up. I know you and I haven't really had a chance to talk at any level of depth, but we really wanted to build like the agnostic analytics layer in healthcare, which was really lacking. And we needed a way to quickly plug in new technology, new data sources, new devices, new types of information. And then what we want to do is build an analytics layer and then an intelligence layer on top of it. But maybe you could just summarize like what some of the top pain points are that you put in an article for everyone who's listening and then we can kind of go from there. They were pretty succinct. <laughs> yeah, it was it was a little profane, but that is one of my tendencies from firefighting. I saw um, that I, on, your, uh, on your website that you dropped the, a lot of profanities and F-bombs. We're going to get along great. Yeah, there's something about the stress relief aspect of it for me. But um, yeah, I think so. The first thing was I wanted to say, yes, something's going wrong. Like a lot of doctors are so stuck down in the trees that they're not realizing their forest is getting cut down mm-hmm. and they're feeling the pain, but they're feeling it without any kind of like conscious awareness of like why that forest is getting cut down or the larger market forces behind it. So I wanted to acknowledge that something's wrong and it's so wrong that it has to change at, at some kind of a critical level. Yeah. I would agree with that. I mean, just we had an experience recently working with a large health system and it was actually to the point where it was impossible to do business with them due to a lot of these limitations. And we all just chased our tails around for 18 months and then the project got shut down and went nowhere. So like that's kind of, I don't know, that's what we're up against basically. Yeah, it's literally like it's become a complete heart block to use a a medical term. The physicians are leaving the profession in droves right now. And we hear all these statistics about burnout and physicians wanting to leave. And and it's being attributed to COVID, but I don't think it has anything to do with COVID. I think COVID was just like, you know, the star on the camel's back. What I think it's about is like the quality of the workday. 
of the average physician. And these are sensitive people who are high performing, who are intellectual, they're hardworking. And if they're burning out, there's something like extremely wrong. And doctors in particular, because we feel such a, you know, obligation to give more and more and more and more. And that's impressed on us from such an early age and training. And we get a lot of like social positive social feedback for all the things that we give. So when we're burning out, there's something like wrong with that. Yeah. And you also were making some comments around how do we help the profession as a whole bring in more technology? How do we help them bring in more of the latest types of things like digital health technology that could enhance what they do and provide better patient care? But I think one of the points you were making is that there's really even an inability to bring in innovation at this point. So even if there was a desire, there's no innovation reaching these types of professionals. Did I get that right? Yeah. Well, what I wanted to say was that this is not happening by accident. There's a layer of for-profit EHR systems that profit from not providing high quality technology and blocking high quality technology from entering. And the only people that can break through that membrane is doctors themselves. And to ask them to do that is a lot because they're already like overwhelmed. They don't necessarily know what to ask for. And they don't feel like there's any help on the other side of that membrane. But in reality, there's all kinds of very useful technologies that cannot penetrate right now, like the what you're working on. Yeah. So if if we were to kind of like wipe the slate clean and start over again, for example, when we work with physicians in other countries, for example, there's one system for everybody. So at least they've got all the data in one place. We've got the data in 30,000 places right now. So there's that issue of data fragmentation. And then there's obviously the inherent security challenges like one of the challenges of trying to work with this large health system is just like the number of ransomware attacks that they're dealing with on a daily basis. And it's like nine months just to get their security team to give you the thumbs up because they're under so much threat from a security point of view. So like there's that whole angle of it. And then there's the ability to like also be innovative, but also keep the Titanic moving in the right direction. You know what I mean? So like, how could we imagine a better way to do this type of a thing? I don't know that there's an answer right now, but when you think about it, what would uh, the next iteration look like? Well, first of all, I want to go after the security thing, because the security thing is why doctors are always told you have bad health tech because there's a security risk. There's only a bad security risk because it's terrible software. Anybody, so I do nuclear power. We've got a cohort that does nuclear power cybersecurity. And everybody knows if you want to hack somebody's system, you go after health tech because it's so poorly designed. There's just no, <laughs> no it's excuse. It's a fundamental funnel yeah. issue of the technology. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah, it's so badly built on the back end. And 500 like, different servers connected to the internet. Yeah, that's all. why they're so busy. They're playing yeah. whack-a-mole for like a yeah. terrible system with a bunch of holes in it. So yeah, I I see that a lot. Doctors are like, oh, I have terrible software because it's, you know, it's so insecure. No, it's insecure because you have terrible software. So yeah, that first. Second off, so I have two solutions that I think are absolutely critical in physicians. You know, I've been drilling down on them pretty hard because after 10 years, you start to look at like, what's the solution? Like, I just get tired of problems. So the two solutions I think are absolutely critical is that Medicine needs to create a technology-specific specialty. It's become critical. I'm going to keep using that word, but it's become critical. If doctors do not own technology as a profession, they will continue to rely on, on external professions providing their technology, and they're never going to have the context. That clinical training is unique. 
somebody asked me the other day, what do I mean by clinical? And I said, I mean, putting your hands on a thousand patients with undiagnosed conditions with legal skin in the game for their outcomes. That's clinical. And then once you do that, okay, yeah, now you can start looking at designing technology for doctors. But if you don't do that, you don't know what they're thinking. And more importantly, you don't have the same risk. Like doctors have so much professional, legal, and financial risk for any mistakes that happen in medicine that if you can't have empathy for that, you're never going to understand their aversion to experimenting. Mm -hmm. So that's the first thing. Second thing is I think doctors have a really good legal case for opening, for cracking the software interfaces open. And I think if they were able to crack the interfaces open, they could bring better technology in by default. Technology companies would flood in the door. And then if they had an app-like interface, they could select the ones they liked. And that would just solve so many problems all at once. Because I know probably 20 different apps that are usable, solve clinical problems, and do a great job. They're HIPAA secure. They're way more secure than most hospital systems. But doctors can't buy them or use them or get to them in their regular workday because they don't run on top of these interfaces. That's the challenge we just ran into, was we had medical professionals in the system that wanted to use our technology to solve a very specific problem. And they introduced us to a group that could help us get shepherded in through the front door. You know, so we had a, a sponsor. There was a very clear use case. It was a program that was going to um, integrate the uh, Aura Ring into a, a sleep optimization type of a program, a pretty simple thing. And we went down the path of, of trying to make this available to this group, which was super exciting for us. And it was the most dysfunctional red tape failed project I'd ever been a part of. We couldn't even get it. It was impossible. We failed yeah, after yeah. like 18 months of spinning our wheels. So like you said, even if there was an interface where they're like, hey, I love this. I want to apply this. It meets all the security requirements. It's HIPAA. It's validated. It was not possible. So these are legal problems for two reasons. And, and this is coming from, I did a year in tobacco control and I work with Stan Glantz. Stan Glantz got the unmarked boxes of tobacco documents back in like the 80s. Somebody sent him like 20 boxes of unmarked documents. And then he went to court and like, you know, he's, he's a pretty hard-headed guy. He took it across California. He legislated tobacco. And his big takeaway, I remember one day he's standing there and he's waving his hands in front of me. I, I talked to him for like an hour and he was like, if it's for profit, it's a legal problem. So the people that made it impossible for your doctors to get your technology and for your technology to get in benefited financially. Mm-hmm. And when that happens, when they have a financial incentive to block new software from coming in, to block the data on the back end from going out, the only solution is legal. And I think in this case, the people with the best and sharpest legal case are clinicians themselves because they can just tag the extra six hours they work a day. And for doctors, that's a huge financial case. They can tag those six hours to a class action and they don't even have to be a mass court. They have to be individually recognized. But for a class action, they just have to, you have to, have to get enough doctors saying, yeah, I worked an extra six hours a day and here's my salary. And then a legal firm will litigate it on their behalf. Yeah. So. Well, when we started building our product and taking it to market, we obviously were aware of the challenges of going into the conventional systems. We were well aware of the boneyard of startups that died on the vine, trying to sell a great solution into a system and just ran out of cash, even just like waiting to get a pilot agreement approved. It was extremely challenging. And so what we did was we entered the market through what I would call more lifestyle medicine. And we entered the market for us through the cash pay side of healthcare. 
and the types of practitioners that don't take insurance. They used to work in the system and they've left and they're now in private practice and they're doing holistic or integrative or functional care, same types of things, but they are now compensated in a way that allows them to spend 60, 90 minutes with you going over a specific type of a situation. You're paying them cash. You're paying them out of pocket generally. But those were the professionals who said, okay, I will pay for this product and I'll use it because it's giving me insights into what's happening to my patients outside the office. So now I can get a really, really precise view into lifestyle factors that are driving a health outcome. Like why does this person's blood sugar hit 180 every night at 9 p.m.? And then they have a crap sleep, right? So like we started selling into that market because they understood the value of the data. They could make really quick decisions. They could evaluate a product, sign with us and have this up and running in a week versus like what we went through at some of the larger systems. So the way we thought about it was, well, let's go into this. I don't even know what the right word for it is. I'll just call it like integrative market for now. They were already doing a lot of lifestyle medicine. They wanted to know what was happening to you during the day. They wanted to know what you were eating. They wanted to know certain information about maybe certain genetic SNPs. They wanted to run more advanced diagnostic testing in some cases that would be really hard to get a regular doctor to run something exploratory. Like, can you test these 10 things? I don't even know if there's going to be anything there, but I, I want to keep going. I want to dig deeper. So th- we just kind of like found our tribe bringing our product in through that market. And the reason I bring that up, Dre, is because it looks like a lot of your professional interests are also in this world of um, integrative approaches to healthcare, even just things like yoga. It sounds like you are a yogi. I also, I teach yoga. I teach kundalini yoga. Ashley, who you connected with on my team is a yoga teacher. Ryan, who you connected with on my team is a yoga teacher. So like bringing that part in, I want to talk about your work in um, Rainforest as well, but you also dropped a little few clues on uh, your book, which I just ordered around shamanism. So like there's the plant medicine side of the house and that gets into like mental health stuff, which is like super important. And I'm super excited to see things like ketamine and psilocybin starting to come to life in clinically significant ways. So it just seems that you also think that way. And maybe you could just share on like some of your thoughts on the lifestyle approaches to health that are that are most interesting for you. Yeah. So, uh, wow. Okay. Canada is a great system and there's a lot of public health focus. So I got a ton of public health training during my training. And I was like dramatically interested in in plastic surgery, microsurgery, which is like the far end of downstream like mm-hmm. care. And then I was really also simultaneously interested in preventative medicine and yeah. public health. Uh-huh. And I ended up going the public health route. It was a tough choice. I, I loved both of them, but my brain's a little bit more lateral. So I was like, you know, public health is going to be better for me. So I went into preventative medicine and then I started chasing that rabbit hole and I chased it around the world. You know, I looked at Ayurvedic medicine, traditional Chinese medicine, indigenous medicine, And the more I looked at it, the more I saw like uh, subtle effects of preventative medicine. It's so holistic. It's hard to measure in the data. Mm -hmm. So I got really interested in that aspect. And yes, there is a tribe for that. I am a certified Bikram yoga teacher. So I did a project a few months ago, about six months ago, where I did twice daily 90 minute classes of Bikram for six months. And at the end of it, I wrote this. 
yeah so it was fun and i did it in thailand with covert and lincoln mathis and yeah covert's a character i'm a character we had a lot of fun and then at the end I of it i, I had the book. time to do two bikram classes a day i'm lucky if i get in one a week these days it was post-COVID. I was like totally burnt out. And I was like, because we did that the testing network. And then when the vaccine came out, I was like, that's it. I'm never working again. So I, I went off for six months. And then it, of course it didn't take. And I went back to work again afterwards. But at the end of it, I wrote this book. And yes, it is out there. It's on the other side of my brain, the one I don't talk about very often in a professional setting. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, I have a strong, personally, I have a strong spiritual experience that I would probably compare mostly to shamanism or uh, Zen Buddhism. I guess the Tibetan Buddhist, Krishnamurti and Jed McKenna are like my favorites. I think in the Western world, we tend to differentiate between spirituality and medicine. They're completely independent things. So we don't talk about spirituality or we, we delegate it to other people. But that split doesn't occur in all cultures. So I just spent the last month in the Peruvian Amazon working with indigenous shaman. And they were explaining that as a shaman, they're like, well, first off, I'm the community leader. So the role of a shaman is to be a community leader. And also I mentioned like this split between spirituality and medicine in the West. And they were just kind of aghast. They were like, how could you separate the two? That doesn't even like make sense. And I was like, yeah, it's really interesting that for them, that was kind of like outside of the bounds of acceptability. Whereas for us, it's just like a given in medicine. And I I wonder how much of our frustration with the system is also a frustration with the concept of what is health. Because we're so busy treating disease and it's a bell curve, obviously, you know, disease and health. And so little of our training is in this concept of of health. Like if we want to fix somebody from being diseased, then what does it look like when they're healthy? And, you know, we don't know that much about it. Like how many doctors know about blue zones or, you know, the longevity science or, you know, how many of them study professional athletes when they study musculoskeletal injuries? You know, we just always assume that we've understood everything about the human body because we study pathology, but no, we just really one end of the bell curve. And I think that without a concept personally and professionally of what health is, we can't truly treat disease. And that's what a lot of these guys bring in is this idea of holistic mental health. And we don't have that in our society right now. Well, that is incredibly fascinating insight to like dive deeper in, which is like, we have this bifurcation of spirituality and medicine, arguably, and even a bifurcation of lifestyle and medicine. And I think that's like another major gap, especially when it comes to things like food, for example, and stress. So how could we start to bring that type of care more into the mainstream? I also think that our mental health, the amount of mental health disease in our country is maybe in a lot of developed countries is probably moving in the wrong direction as fast as what you would consider typical chronic illness. like obesity and heart disease and stuff like that. This is just a completely subjective assessment, but like the mental health number of people that could be diagnosed with mental health issues might even be climbing as fast as some of those like rampant Neolithic diseases. And so like the spirituality and medicine idea is incredible. And it's so far outside of the purview of where we are now here. I don't know how we could close the gap on that. I can only say that I'm encouraged by the FDA starting to fast track research into certain psychedelic medicines and other compounds. And I think that is a good start, especially if that could be standard of care, where you can get that type of treatment in a medically supervised environment with proper people who can help you integrate an experience and and have that. 
I think that could be a huge step forward for us. And it's already happening with um, ketamine clinics. It's not meant to be preventative at this point. It's meant to be acute, where typically you're going in there with like extreme cases of treatment-resistant depression or something like that. But the point is, you can go to a medical clinic and ask for that type of experience from a mental health point of view. So what are your thoughts on bringing more of that into the mainstream and having that as a treatment option for people who may not be like at the extreme edge of mental health, but they could just be dealing with everyday depression? So there's that aspect of spirituality. There's also the aspect of spirituality that has nothing to do with plant medicines. It's yoga and meditation and learning how to be fully present and aware with our own mind and our own body and that we're part of a larger connected whole. So when you think about spirituality and medicine, what comes up in terms of how we can change the status quo or what would you like to see happen in that domain? Well, I like to call the attention to the work of doctors who are more embedded in the medical system because I feel like I have the freedom to be, you know, openly spiritual because I'm kind of outside of the medical system and I, I live in a much more like unrestricted environment. So I like to call attention to the work of even Alexander, mm-hmm. who is a Harvard neurosurgeon who wrote a book about his near-death experience. And it's it's brilliant, it's compassionate, it's kind, and he's done a lot of work with death and dying. Another one of my favorite physicians is Gabriel Matei. He's a Canadian physician and he wrote a book called When the Body Says No. I mean, like everything he's written is genius and it's very much integratable into Western practice today as it stands. He's done his work, he's done his research and he can speak in kind of a code switching language. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't call it spirituality, but it's kind of like applied spirituality within a Western context. He has a new book coming out that's um, The Myth of Normal and I strongly recommend it. I think it's going to be genius and it's kind of about about this concept of health. And the last person I want to call attention to is Emily Silverman does a show called The Nocturnist. It's a podcast out of San Francisco and it's storytelling for doctors. And it's kind of like, it's almost shamanic in the sense of like catharsis that happens both in the show and then the storytelling. And it's, it's very much a Western, it's a way to attach meaning to Western experience that is kind of a religious. So those are three doctors that are just, you know, straight up like, super reputable, been integrated in the system for a long time. And they bring that aspect of meaning back to healthcare in a way that's, I think, acceptable within current restrictions. I want to talk about psychedelics. We have a cohort that does legalization of psychedelics. And we were working on a, on a legalization project in Colorado that's also partner with Johns Hopkins for psilocybin. And we have practitioners that use ketamine and psilocybin in Canada, in LA. And these are chiropractors, clinical psychologists, and we have death doulas. So it's a group of people who basically is looking at how to integrate this deeper meaning in more functional ways. I always say as a yogi, so as a yogi who has been in indigenous settings with indigenous people using psychedelics, I will say that I think that psychedelics are a tuning fork for the mind. They can give you a tone like something that you can hit, but you can access those states with other ways that don't involve external substances. So yoga, meditation, all these things kind of teach you how to tune your mind to a different channel. And the end goal, I think of either, you know, using traditional psychedelics, if that's in your path or using yoga or meditation is to have more control over your consciousness states and what frequency you're tuned into. And you can follow clinical psychology for that too. You know, there's like There's all kinds of great work coming out of functional MRI and neuroscience that teaches you how to do the same thing, like with neurofeedback and stuff. So I don't think the path matters so much as 
the conscious control over where your mind is at, this concept of metacognition. And doctors are really good at this. See, they're, they're always thinking about thinking and many of them do it in, in very, like, I see surgeons all the time, you know, I remember seeing these surgeons, they would sit down, they would have a call or something with a family member before a case, and they'd be emotionally stressed out. But when they got into the case, this just kind of calm would settle, you know, really experienced surgeons, and they would go into like an alpha state. And it was just that moment, the patient, you know, and they wouldn't think about the outcomes, they just think about the process. And like, that is, I see doctors doing this all the time. You know, they, they go from one room with an angry, stressed out, emotionally uncontrolled patient to another room with, you know, a happy family and a child and they dump it in between. So how do they do that? We have this capacity. We can do this. Yeah. I like the way you framed it, which is there's lots of ways to get there in terms of developing more of an inner awareness. There are plant medicine there's yoga. For me, the kundalini yoga that I've been doing for the last 18 months, 24 months has been incredible. That I think has helped. I've been doing meditation for a long time, but more of the deliberate breath work and the types of practices that are much more emphasizing around the auric field and the connection with infinite. So I've had really strong experiences through uh, yoga and meditation, also through plant medicine. And then you also brought up technology that's coming on the market where it's bringing more tools downstream to more people like neurofeedback types of tools. And uh, this device I just tested, BrainTab, where you can put on a binaural beat guided meditation and have a simulated light experience in front of your eyes. Like anybody can do that. And so... It's happening. It's just, it's not part of the um, traditional system that's out there. It's kind of in this other side of healthcare that you'd put more into like wellness and digital health and other kinds of things like that. And it's there. It's not part of conventional medicine. So it is, is it ever possible that those worlds come together where they I can feel exist like, or are they yeah. separate completely? So I think I'd be remiss if I didn't, if I wasn't clear about this, because my book is very clear about it. I'm just not usually clear about it in my professional context. So I had a, a full Kundalini awakening that was involuntary at the end of medical school. And that's not a common thing. Like I think in the medical literature, it's characterized as a physio Kundalini syndrome is kind of how they describe it. And yoga, it's kind of an accepted norm. In India, it's been researched for thousands of years. But when I first experienced it, it was completely outside of the bounds of my clinical or Western training, and I had no preparation for it. I did find people that understood it and helped me with it. And I wrote my book primarily to help with people like me who, who have a Western life and they have a scientific life and they want to find a way to integrate these two journeys in a way that they can later function. Yeah. And I, I think in my book, I compared it to the particle wave experience, you know, and physicists just kind of intuitively get this. They're like, yeah, it's a particle and it's a wave. It's cool. It's the same thing. And it's not, you're like, you know what, my mind's going to split on this, but not, it doesn't really. And so you can have this intensely spiritual journey, I think, and still function within the parameters of science. Because to me, um, as somebody who's like the biggest Richard Feynman fan in the world, and I just love empiricism and data, and if I can get my hands on it, you know, it's like, I love facts. And so as somebody who loves facts, I'm okay to have my facts contained within a much bigger world that I don't understand and maybe never will. Maybe my human brain it. can never encompass it. So I don't consider my work in science or technology to be exclusionary to my spiritual world. It just my spiritual world is much bigger. And I, I'm very comfortable with the border of what I can know at any given time. 
Well, everything that we do here is about what can we actually quantify about health. So everything I do in my professional life is how can I objectively measure? How can I get as much data as possible on my health? Because it's changed the way I manage my own health in ways that I can't even articulate. In fact, it's the data has changed how I manage my own health so profoundly that I've gone on and started this company to try to make this available to other people. Simple preventative things that you can do on your own at home and get objective data immediately to know if it's working or not every single day and calibrate your health and your life in real time. So like I'm similar. I want all the data that I can possibly get. And then the other side of me is this other realm that is much more vast and unknown. And they coexist beautifully. I haven't really found ways to bring them together in a commercially viable sense yet, but I live in both of those worlds quite successfully as well. And I'm trying to think of ways to, um, maybe they never will come together in any formal way. Maybe they just are completely separate parts of consciousness and life that don't have any overlap. But I'm starting to put together pieces like I'm going to be offering a retreat in. May of next year. And it will be all about health quantification and all about Kundalini yoga. <laughs> so I don't know what's going to come out of that, but it'll be I like sensors and Kundalini in the same thing. No, you know, what came out of my six month Bikram process where I was just like deep in the weeds of kind of like just letting everything go, which is a very like unknown space. And I was like, what am I going to do next? I don't even know. What came out of that was this really amazing project where we're just doing reforestation. So we've got an app. We do fair trade carbon offsets. We work with indigenous farmers who are the most practical people on the planet, by the way. If they didn't have a really rock solid sense of reality, they wouldn't survive in their environment. And um, we're paying them for carbon offsets directly. And it was just, it was funny because I thought, you know, I'm just going to be going to be a yoga teacher for the rest of my life. Maybe I'm just going to wander off the edge of spirituality and never come back. Instead, what happened was I, I came back in very concrete, actionable, and more precisely intellectual ways. I feel like the fuzz kind of went out of my head and, and I was able to appreciate more what is. Mm-hmm. And I think that this exploration of the unknown kind of bring, if you follow it far enough, will bring you back to tangibles. Like what is now? I love Um, it. And it's made me a better scientist. Totally agree. Same for me. It's made me better at everything I do in my professional life, which is highly technical and analytical and building this crazy cloud platform. And the spirituality makes me a hundred times better at what I do. I think clearer. I'm more empathic. It clarifies my sense of why. So they just seem to reinforce each other quite nicely. Yeah. I think Viktor Frankl said, if you have a why, you can do anyhow. Well, I want to hear more about this project. I know you wanted to share more on it. So can you tell us more about that work that you're doing? In, yeah, it's in crazy. So much fun. It's indigenous led. So I traveled to Columbia during kind of this period of my life. And uh, the indigenous group I was working with said, hey, you know, we really want to conserve. We have our own organization. We've been fighting off the laggers for 10 years. Can you bring us like some resources to do this with? But we want no strings attached. And I love that concept of no strings attached because I see so many indigenous groups around the world. I work with indigenous groups in Canada and the US and like Latin America. And this concept of no strings attached is so important to indigenous health. So I thought, okay, how do we even do that? So I started looking at trustless validation systems. So like GPS, machine learning on smartphones. 
uh, various drones to measure carbon sequestration. And we looked at ways that they could prove that they were reforesting without having to do a lot of middlemen and without having this people going onto their land and doing surveys all the time who weren't from their their region. And I think we came up with a pretty good, simple method. They can run outside of cell service on a cell phone. And we also experimented, we can pay them directly with micropayments. So I can conserve carbon for pennies on the dollar, which is great because what's actually killing tropical forests and consequently our atmosphere is 80% of the deforestation is happening on farms less than five hectares. And it's happening with about 1 billion indigenous people and small farmers who have no other method of transacting on the market. Like their only income is is pulling down the trees that surround them and selling it to international hardwood suppliers. But it's not what they want to do. And and I think this assumption in the Western world is these guys don't care. In fact, they care, I think, more deeply about their forest than anybody because they they understand their forest better than anybody else. And when they want to preserve it, I feel like it's an energy that can be, you can tap into. And so much of this is like, I've always go back to this concept of you can't replace something with nothing. So if you have intense pain in clinical medicine with software systems, you can't replace that with nothing. You have to replace it with something. And it's the same principle because when I look at the solution for technology and medicine, I try and find doctors that are already doing it. And when we look at the solution for carbon assets, we find indigenous groups that are already doing it and we just give them more resources and they're the something. And so they now have a way to generate alternative income streams that do not involve cannibalizing the land. Yeah. And it's so cheap. I mean, the amount, so for instance, on one hectare of rainforest, if you, you can grow a cow in three years and at the end of the three years, the cow brings you $12, but I can pay about $12 a day for taking that same hectare and replanting it to conserve jungle. And the trick is, because as a technologist and as somebody who's adopted and, you know, like I can write NIH grant proposals, unfortunately, with my eyes closed at this point. So like, it's not that hard for me to sit down and like figure out all the fancy technology or the paperwork that's necessary for them to get what they need. So that's kind of what we're doing on our end. It's just translating. Are there ways that people can support that project that you would want to put out there? Oh, yes, please. If you want to support the project, I would be delighted. You can, uh, so we have, a, we're B Corp. We have a nonprofit and a for-profit. And if people want to donate, they can donate. The donations always go to expanding farmer capacity, like getting them a bank account, literacy training, silviculture training. So like ways that they can participate in the market. And then the for-profit is you can buy carbon offsets at any point in our pipeline. If you want to resell them when they're you know fully certified, or if you want to wait and buy a certified offset, all of that's possible. So where would people go in, in either case? Savimbo.com. So our project is called the Savimbo Project. That's actually out of Kenya, uh, and it means trust. So it's the Savimbo Project and savimbo.com. Cool. Well, we'll link to it for sure. Heads up, sufficiently on board to support financially. So, um, I love it. And everyone who's listening, if you want to go and support, it's S as in Sierra, A Apple, V Victor, I Indigo, and Mary B Bravo, O, Savimbo Project. Any other things from the indigenous health world? You've had such an opportunity to spend so much time in these indigenous communities and with all of your technological expertise and your medical expertise, like the lens you have going into these cultures and the way you think about how they approach health and spirituality and medicine. Like it's kind of an open ended question, but like, 
Are there some big takeaways you've learned from working in these environments that you can share? I know it's kind of open-ended, but these indigenous cultures are fascinating and we can learn so much from them and such a small percentage of people ever get to experience them. So like, what are some of the biggest takeaways for you personally from working with all of these incredible people? Well, the first thing I would say is that while I am a good translator, I'm not indigenous myself. And so the best people to speak about indigenous health is the indigenous people themselves. I do believe that people should do their best to find ways to interact with indigenous healers and learn from them in respectful ways, whether that's, you know, through a book that they've written or through community involvement, that's fine. One of my takeaways from indigenous health in general has been one thing I didn't realize about, so I work in Columbia right now, they were smelting platinum at the same time Europeans were. So they were not a technologically backward society by any means. They never have been. When the Spaniards showed up, you know, it wasn't super healthy for the local population. And a lot of that knowledge went into the jungle. And while, you know, Europeans have different natural resources, what they have in the Amazon is they have the most incredible array of biodiversity on the planet. And so a lot of their technology, which is by no means inept, is biological technology. Yep, agreed. It's knowledge of biota, of plants, of Mm -hmm. animals, of trees. I went out last week with an indigenous farmer and he showed me 30 different trees on his land, 30 different species of trees, the the fruit, he knew all the names, he knew which animals ate them, he knew all this. And it wasn't really even like unusual knowledge for him. I grew up in central Idaho and we have several species of trees, but we don't have anything like that, just the variety. So the technical knowledge in these societies is precious. And it's not shared often. And one of the reasons is that it hasn't been safe for indigenous communities to share their knowledge because when it's commercialized or taken advantage of, they aren't benefiting. I've read about that where there's actual companies that will go down there specifically to look for things that are in their indigenous knowledge that could be then turned into or patented or not patented, but can be commercialized and nothing goes back to the community itself. So ethnobotany is a branch of medicine that looks at how to commercialize plant knowledge in a way that benefits the initial community. And if anybody wants to get hold of me, I'll send you like some amazing like treatises on like how to conduct this kind of collaboration. But it comes down to land rights primarily. So if indigenous communities have land rights, if they have existing organizations, like, you know, financial structures to manage those kinds of funds, and then finding ways to enable collective ownership of benefits. So I grew up in central Idaho and uh, tamoxifen originally came from yew trees in central Idaho. And I remember living in central Idaho when they were cutting down all the yew trees and skinning the bark to sell for tamoxifen. Eventually they synthesized it and it still remains one of our best cancer drugs. And so I don't know if the end result was bad, but I think that the solution could have been much more integrative. And that's what I'm interested in because the, I think our biggest breakthroughs in science, in Western science and Western medical science are not going to be out of a lab with synthesized compounds. I think it's going to be finding ways to access the biota that we already have. So and for us to do that, we have to preserve what we've got and then respect the people that have this knowledge. Mm, I love it. Well, We're coming up on the top of the hour here, Drea. We've covered a lot of ground from like the limitations of EHR systems to all kinds of topics around yoga and spirituality and medicine and uh, what we can learn from indigenous health. I think these are all incredible topics. And 
even just starting to think this way can help to change people's health when they start to think more holistically and think more about connecting with different parts of different cultures, different lifestyles, different mindsets around what health even means, the definition of that. We have our understanding, but we've kind of touched on a lot of different exciting areas. In closing, I want to say a couple of things. One, I, I would like to take your Bikram class. So when you're teaching somewhere, please let me know. That, that's actually how I first started practicing yoga. It's still my jam. I might go today here in a few hours. We'll see. So uh, that's option number one. If you ever want to take a Kundalini class with me, I can um, send you information where I teach. So that could be some fun follow-up items and we'll see what comes out of there. But we touched on your work on the Savimbo project and then just any other things you want to put out there on the airwaves for our people listening. It's a bunch of health data nerds, but um, we're all like-minded. So anything we didn't cover that you want to put out there uh, as we uh, close out here. Well, I just want to give you some credit for what you're doing because I'm a massive advocate for primary data. So much of our um, health tech is looking at EHR records. And I think that the, most of that data is fictionalized. It's not really valuable when you look at scientific research. And there's so much better primary data out there. So I Agreed. strongly agree with the use of wearables, with the use of lifestyle sensors that can be integrated into clinical practice. And then the more Thank pristine you. the data, like video footage or just the data streams need to be better. If we applied all of the infrastructure that we're using on electronic health records towards primary data, which is so available now, I think we would see really amazing things coming out for medicine. Well, I appreciate that. You know, one of my favorite examples are just these bloody continuous glucose monitors. It's like the data is incredible. It comes in every five minutes. I can immediately notice that someone's starting to go outside of range and do a preventative intervention like in seconds that can be life-changing and even just people who are trying to lose some weight it's like the data is incredible and, and you can get it in real time and, and it's amazing so um thank you for acknowledging that we're incredibly excited about sensor technology because the data is getting better and better the sensors are getting cheaper and cheaper they're able to passively measure more and more things which means there's not even the um friction point of asking people to take a measurement anymore. It's just happening. And so there's like incredible opportunities for us to do more with that. That's why we try to get our hands on every sensor, plug it in, and then find ways to put practitioners on the other end or technology that can start identifying anomalies automatically. That, that's an even bigger upside or starting to look for signals in that data. They could be complex signals from multiple devices, but that's our jam. So um, thank you for acknowledging it. I appreciate that. I'd love to show it to you sometime. I will definitely check it out. I want to put a plug in for one of my friends. He makes a sensor that you can wear, like a wristband that can yeah. distinguish between anxiety and happiness. I love and it. I, I've just been really happy when you see these kind of advances, you think, oh my God, what can I do with that? Like I can do so many things. I want to see the happiness light up all the time. That's like motivation for me. It's like you get a little bit of biofeedback that you feel great. Yeah, if you can measure it, you can work with it. And like, yeah. you know, when we also, when we when when we look at a health record and we're tracking a diagnosis, like a diagnostic term, we don't allow for that paradigm shift. You know, the term ulcer and, you know, has now been replaced with the term H. pylori and the underlying data is about the same. It's like pain in this one area. So yeah. when we look at primary data, we can adjust our paradigms, our disease paradigms. I love it. Yeah. Well, thank you for taking our outreach. I know we hit you up cold on LinkedIn and um, I had no idea we were going to get into so many exciting, awesome topics. So this was just completely unexpected and wonderful in every possible sense. 
It's serendipity for sure. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks. Thank you for listening to Data Driven Health Radio. 